Здравствуйте. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of City Breaks St Petersburg. An episode called Alexander Palace and the Last of the Romanovs. The Alexander Palace, I think, is a little bit neglected by many visitors. They go to the nearby Catherine Palace. They go to Peterhof, of course. Perhaps they go to one or two of the city centre palaces. But when they're out at Saskazello, they don't necessarily visit the Alexander Palace, which is in the same grounds as the Catherine Palace. But I think that's a pity, because it's a very poignant place, forever linked to the last Tsar of Russia, the Emperor Nicholas II, and his wife, the Empress Alexandra, and their five children, who were, of course, the last of the ruling Romanovs. This was their family home. Nicholas and Alexandra moved in about a week after their wedding, and it's where they had and brought up their five children, the four daughters and the Tsarevich Alexei. And it was from the Alexander Palace that they were taken to Siberia in 1917, shortly before they were killed. So as its guidebook puts it, it really is, quote, a symbol of the tragic fate of the last Russian monarch. And for that reason alone, I think a visit is unmissable if you have the time. The history of the palace, though, starts long before that. It was built during the reign of Catherine the Great, and she was very fond of it. For example, she was crowned in Moscow, crowned empress, but she came back to St. Petersburg mainly to live, and she made her ceremonial entrance into the city from the Alexander Palace. She liked to celebrate her birthday here every year, and it was the place to which she retired whenever she didn't feel well. It's also the place where she oversaw the education of her two grandsons, or the two oldest ones, Alexander and Constantine. She was very aware that Alexander was her heir and was keen to play a part in his education. And the two little boys often played, even as babies and as they were growing up, in her study. It's said that she used to visit them every day before she ever started work. And during her reign, the park was full of playthings for them, things like wall bars and merry-go-rounds and swimming pools. When I read this, I was quite amazed to hear that they were all in the plural. I don't know how many merry-go-rounds or indeed swimming pools two children need, but anyway. And uh, in the guidebook, it also tells us that there were other amusements set up for them in the garden. So, for example, quote, monkeys dance to a drumbeat, tightrope walkers, magicians and fire-eaters amazed the public. So it got off to a good start as the imperial favourite residence. It was also home to Alexander I and his wife, Elizaveta Alexeyevna, and also then to Emperor Nicholas I, for whom it was also his favourite residence. I think he saw it as a chance to escape the very strict etiquette of his life in central St Petersburg and liked the fact that he could live here in a little bit more seclusion to the extent, in fact, that when he had to do official things, have receptions and invite guests, he would often do that in the nearby Catherine Palace and leave the Alexander Palace very much as a place which only he and his family, and of course all their servants, enjoyed. So here again it was centre of family life. The grounds were always full of dogs and horses and ponies belonging to the children. The children were educated here. They had seven in total, four boys and three girls, born between 1818 and 1832. So the oldest two boys, confusingly, were another pair of Alexander and Constantine. Then there were two other sons, Nikolai and Mikhail, and three daughters, Maria, Olga and Alexandra. And one of the things set up in their time, which is still there today, was a wooden slide set up actually inside one of the palace's big rooms. So plenty of fun and games could be had there. And 
The guidebook too tells us that Emperor Nicholas himself used to enjoy partaking in all the fun, saying that he, quote, readily participated in diverse children's amusements and games, excursions to the farm, playing hide-and-seek, charades and forfeits, visits to the Chinese theatre, riding. We know that the education of particularly the oldest boys included all sorts of things apart from lessons, such as artillery and fencing and dancing, and we read in the guidebook of some of the things that they liked to do in their free time. So, quote, Their favourite occupations were military games. A special table served as an arena for toy battles, on sea or land. Ships, fortresses and figures of horsemen were arranged on it. Constantine revealed an interest in the fleet, which enabled him in the future to become a sailor. Alexander headed the Ataman Cossack Regiment, and the boys were also fond of billiards, draughts and chess. So really you get the feeling of a happy, lively family home. Although, of course, terrible things happened too, not least to this family, in 1844, when the youngest daughter, Alexandra Nikolaevna, died, I think quite suddenly, and her older sister Olga wrote of the shock that overcame the whole family on this occasion, using the words, quote, It was awful to look at Papa. He has suddenly become an old man. It's said that Alexander II, the next emperor, preferred actually to live in the Catherine Palace, but his sons, Nikolai and Alexander, also loved to play in the park when they weren't learning. And we learn about them, for example, that, quote, the brothers studied foreign languages, were good shooters at targets shaped like sandpipers and sparrows, engaged in drawing, woodwork, and riding on horseback and in carriages. They liked very much the small gardens and kitchen gardens allotted to each of them near the palace, where they diligently planted flowers and vegetables, a net with stairways, ropes and high masts arranged for their gymnastic activities, a toy fortress which they stormed or defended in turn, a menagerie with a favourite old elephant whom they never forgot to visit, fondle and feed. When Alexander grew up, of course, he became the Emperor Alexander III. That was in 1881. And he too chose Alexander Palace as his family home. So he and his wife lived there with their six children, the oldest of whom was Nikolai, who became the Emperor Nicholas II and reigned from 1894 onwards. As I mentioned in the introduction, Nicholas and his wife Alexandra moved into the Alexander Palace pretty much straight after their wedding. Nicholas wrote in the early days, quote, It was so strange to spend this night in the bedroom of my dear father and mother, in which I was born. I am living in my old rooms, and Alex in my mother's rooms. I cannot describe in words what a bliss is our life together here, in such a good place as Tsarskoy. It said that he basically left the decor very much as it had been when he was growing up, but he did like new technical innovations and he would have those imported to the palace whenever he got the opportunity. In 1899, for example, one of the first hydraulic lifts in the whole of Russia was installed here in this building, put in to connect the Empress's apartments with those of her children. In 1913, one of the early projectors was brought here so the family could enjoy film evenings at the weekend and the family grew really quite rapidly. So they had their first daughter, Olga, born actually here in the palace in 1895, at which point Nicholas recorded in his diary, quote, I'm glad the child is a girl. Had it been a boy, he would have belonged to the people. Being a girl, she belongs to us. Three more daughters followed fairly rapidly, Tatiana, 1897, Maria, 1899, and Anastasia, born in 1901. 
much as they loved family life with their daughters, the emperor, the empress, and not least everybody else, was really, really hoping that the next child would be a boy. And sure enough, in 1904 came the birth of the Tsarevich, Alexei. Huge celebrations ensued. I read about them in Helen Rappaport's book, Four Sisters, which, by the way, I highly recommend. And this is how she describes the celebrations which took place when it was known that at long last the imperial family had had a son. Quote, at long last, the cannon of the Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg were able to boom out the 301-gun salute across the River Neva, announcing the birth of a Naslednik, an heir, the first to be born to a reigning monarch, rather than a Tsarevich, since the 17th century. People stopped in their tracks to count the number of salutes which came every six seconds. Then a little later on, she continues, quote, National flags seemed to spring from every quarter, and in five minutes after the 102nd gun had boomed out its glad tidings, the whole city was ablaze with flags. Work automatically stopped for the day, and the people gave themselves over to public rejoicing. That evening, the streets were bright with electric illuminations of the imperial twin-headed eagle and the Romanov crowns. Orchestras played in the parks, constantly repeating the national anthem. Later, in many of the capital's best restaurants, the champagne flowed freely at the expense of the proprietors. The baby had been born at just over £11, big blue eyes and a head of golden curls, so everybody's delight was total. But, of course, gradually it became clear that he wasn't a well child at all. In fact, he was badly sick with haemophilia, a disease which, in 1900, was said to leave sufferers with a life expectancy of only about 13 years. So he was going to be a sickly child, a child who would need protecting, a child whom, every time he had an accident, would send everybody into a spin of frenzied worry. But of course, while that was going on behind the scenes, family life had to carry on as best it could, and we're left with lots of descriptions of how that played out. We know, for example, that Alexandra spent much of her time in her study. That was her favourite room where she liked to do what she called fancy work, which I think was some kind of embroidery. She liked to read. She liked to keep up with her correspondence. And the description of her study from the guidebook reads as follows. It was embellished in her favourite pale lilac tones, hence its name, the lilac study. The walls of her study were upholstered with lilac silk, and the lower part was trimmed with wooden panels, painted in imitation of ivory. The furniture, lilac with white, was arranged in a special way, creating several cosy nooks. Placed on the walls, shelves and small cabinets were photographs, souvenirs, books, sheets of music, baskets with needlework, drawing accessories and table games. We know that her library ran to more than a thousand books. She used to like to read English and German and French novels. And she also had many works of Russian religious literature on the bookcases running round the walls of the lilac study. And the family used to gather here at five o'clock most afternoons to drink tea, something they knew was an, or thought was an English custom. And there they would gather and drink tea, read to each other, play music recite poetry sometimes. Apparently Nicholas himself used to recite poetry in Russian or in English or in French. There's a nice description of family dinner time later on in the guidebook which reads as follows. The dinner that started at eight o'clock in the evening lasted exactly 40 minutes. That was a tradition established by Emperor Alexander II. For dinner they served soup with pies or croutons with cheese, then fish, roast meat, 
vegetables, sweet dishes, fruits, coffee, Madeira and liqueurs. My goodness, every night and all in 40 minutes. Amazing. The suite of rooms belonging to Nicholas, the emperor, comprised a bedroom, of course, a dressing room, a separate room known as the wardrobe and a reception room and particularly his study where he used to receive visitors. When Nicholas II worked in his study, there were tables all set up with family photographs and various writing appliances. There were souvenir boxes with long matches for the fireplace, blue and red pencils, as well as ashtrays, pipes, dominoes, pen wipers and writing pads. The children were all educated here at Alexander Palace as well. The Empress herself used to spend several hours a day in their classrooms, supervising their studies. Various governors and governesses were brought in. The girls would also taught needlework and knitting. We're told that they got up early drank tea and had a light breakfast, and then began lessons. After that, they would walk in the park, perhaps play tennis, go boating. They certainly learnt languages, they could speak English and French, and they danced very well. It's said that they were a very lively quartet, much given to rushing around outside and sledging and riding down slides in the house and all sorts, and that visitors would be struck by the shrieks of laughter that they would hear as they approached the rooms where the daughters were playing. One visitor wrote of them, quote, The Grand Duchesses were charming, owing to their freshness and health. It was difficult to find four sisters so different in character, and at the same time so closely tied by friendship. Their friendship did not prevent them from being personally independent, but despite their different characters, they made up a union. The girls compiled their general name, Otma, O-T-M-A, based on the first letter of each of their names. Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia. One of their governesses wrote, quote, They used this general name when making presents or sending letters. The family spent much of their time here at Alexander Palace, but they used to go on holidays too, particularly to the Crimea, to a place called Livadia, where they would spend days hiking and swimming and taking drives along the coast with their parents. Reading all of this, you very much get the picture of a raucous, happy family life. But of course, the backdrop to all of this was the frantic worry about their brother, Alexei, who certainly had his own playthings, joined in some of the games, but who was also frequently very ill. If When he fell over, he would be subject to awful bruising and be really in pain. And sometimes there were even fears about whether he would actually survive or not. And it was at this point that the family came into contact with the man of whom we've all heard so much ever since, namely Grigory Rasputin. I'll be talking much more about him in the next episode, but for the moment, while we're thinking about the family life in Alexander Palace, just wanted to retell one tale which comes from Helen Rappaport's book The Four Sisters Again, which just points out how extraordinary a power Rasputin built up over his ability or apparent ability to make Alexei feel much better. It talks of an occasion in March 1908 when Alexei had another fall, hit his head very badly and swelled up so badly that he could hardly open his eyes. There were two or three very anxious weeks. Rasputin was not there. He'd gone home to Western Siberia where in fact he had a wife and children of his own and so the family just had to weather it and hope that Alexei would get better. And one day, his mother, who'd been out all day, there'd been a family wedding, a cousin, I think, came back up at eight o'clock in the evening to see how he was. And this is how Helen Rappaport describes what happened next. Quote, the nurse told her Alexei's temperature had finally fallen at 8pm. 
there was a telegram waiting for her from Grigori in Siberia, which, when she opened it, assured her that all would be well and that he would say a special prayer at eight that very evening. Coincidence or not, such manifestations of the power of Grigory's prayers for her boy were for the Tsaritsa incontrovertible proof that he alone could save him from death, even at a distance. How could she not but invest all her desperate hopes in him? Wouldn't any other mother have done the same? And although Alexander Palace is very much first and foremost a family home, I haven't mentioned yet, of course, the fact that against this was the backdrop of public events and everything going on in St. Petersburg. This too is nicely described in one of Helen Rappaport's chapters, uh, when she's talking about the winter season of 1913-14, to 14, which of course, as it turned out, was going to be absolutely the end of an era. It was looked back on as a very glittering winter, one in which the greatest splendours of St. Petersburg life, at least for the wealthy, were really at their absolute best. Described like this by Helen Rappaport, quote, Behind the facades of their overheated, luxurious palaces and browsing in the high-class shops along the Nevsky Prospect, filled with Western Russian goods, the Russian aristocracy remained stubbornly oblivious to the visible unrest gathering across the city, fuelled by poverty, deprivation and continuing political oppression. She goes on to describe some of the many amazing parties and balls and receptions that were held in the city that winter. So we read about Grand Duchess Vladimir's four-day Grand Christmas Bazaar. Princess Oblenskaya held a Greek mythology ball. Princess Betsy, who was the resident at the Shuvalova Palace on the Fontanka, held not one but two fancy costume balls that winter one where you had to wear black and white and another one featuring wigs and multicoloured turbans. There were balls for debutantes, there were other balls for young married women. The Imperial Ballet was at its glittering best. Dancers like Matil Kashinska, we'll come back to her in another episode, and Anna Pavlova. And in the middle of all of this, probably the event of the winter, a coming out ball for Olga and Tatiana held at the Anchikov Palace on the 13th of February, 1914. This is how Helen Rappaport writes about that. Quote, Guests were greeted by masters of ceremony in gold-embroidered court dress, black silk breeches and stockings, and buckled patent leather shoes. Two tall black Ethiopian footmen in oriental costume and high turbans showed guests into the ballroom where they awaited the entrance of the emperor and empress followed by Tatiana and Olga tall, slim, lovely creatures who looked at those assembled with a sort of amused curiosity we're told how the ball went on till half past four in the morning although the empress Alexandra only stayed an hour Nicholas was left there chaperoning his girls who refused to go home any earlier Apparently he looked quite uncomfortable and timid and said to one of his dancing partners, Je ne connais personne ici. I don't know anybody here. And again, when you look back to what was about to happen, you can't help thinking that even as early as 1914, things were starting to go badly wrong as far as the relationship between the emperor and his people was concerned. He sounds rather remote if he holds a ball for his two daughters and then claims to know nobody there. 1914, of course, in St. Petersburg, as everywhere else in Europe, turned out to be absolutely the end of an era, the beginning of the First World War, and a time in which the Winter Palace was converted into a hospital for the war wounded. We know that the girls, particularly the older two, Olga and Tatiana, worked there as nurses. 
They seem to have done the training like everybody else and worn the uniforms and certainly not been spared the horrors of tending to the wounded and the sick. And at the same time, they ran a fundraising committee to raise money for the war. And again, when you know what happened to them in the end, it does seem rather poignant that they were there really doing their best in such difficult circumstances. But of course, by 1917, the family found themselves under house arrest in the Alexander Palace. And then on the 1st of August, in the middle of the night, they were woken up and taken away, sent by rail to Western Siberia, which of course was a journey from which they never returned. They were moved on several times, but eventually on July the 17th, 1918, they were gathered, again woken up in the middle of the night, and gathered in the cellar of the temporary house where they'd been staying in Ekaterinburg, and shot every single one of them, the emperor, his wife, the four daughters, and the Tsarevich Alexei. The bodies were buried hurriedly in a nearby forest where they were undiscovered for decades, but eventually, an entire century later, they were reburied in the church of St Peter and St Paul, alongside the remains of almost all the other Romanov emperors. In 1917, only a few weeks after the family had been taken away, the US Red Cross mission arrived, and we have one or two accounts left by them of what they found when they went into the deserted palace. And what they found was somewhere that had seemed very much still like a family home that had been left at quite short notice. For example, somebody wrote, quote, Evidently it had been left in a great hurry, things lying around, toys of the children on the floor, an unfinished letter on the Empress's desk. Here and there, on a table or mantelpiece, lay a number of Kodak snapshots, evidently taken by the children. Perhaps most poignant of all was the sight of one of the Tsarevich Alexei's abandoned French exercise books, in which he had written his name at the top of the page, and, in his childish writing, was inscribed in French, quote, The French lesson is very hard today. This brief private glimpse of a now-vanished era has been quite overwhelming, wrote the eyewitness, to get into the life of a deposed Tsar not long after the nation had fixed it up as a museum, but when the marks of his living presence were still fresh, was indeed a privilege, the memory of which will never leave me. And it wasn't until a hundred years later when the bodies had been found and DNA tests had been conducted to ascertain that yes, it really was the remains of the family, that they were reburied in St. Petersburg, at a ceremony attended by Boris Yeltsin, which he said the following, quote, It's a historic day for Russia. We have long been silent about this monstrous crime. The Ekaterinburg massacre has become one of the most shameful episodes in our history. We want to atone for the sins of our ancestors. Many glorious pages of Russian history are connected with the Romanovs. So, for all those reasons, I think if you can squeeze it into your itinerary, a visit to the Alexander Palace and a chance to remember the family is really very worthwhile. Of course, when you go, you're seeing not just their history, but the history of several generations of the family who came before them, for whom this was also a family home. But I think it's true that the really special connection is to the last family who lived here, loved the house and were wrenched from it when the revolution came. So, if you go and visit today... You see, yes, the splendour of yet another castle in, of course, magnificent grounds, but also you see a family home. You can see the study of Nicholas I, the room which one of the earlier Empress Alexandras turned into a chapel after her own daughter, another Alexandra, died in it. 
you can see the private apartments of the last Empress Alexandra and the toy-filled rooms of her children. There are paintings on the walls of many of the Romanovs. Two very poignant ones are of the Tsarevich Alexei's bedroom and playroom. They really look as if he's only just left and give you the feeling that this family really existed. Perhaps if we leave the last word to Nicholas himself, here's his diary entry written about the day on which they actually left the Alexander Palace. The 31st of July, 1917. Quote, The last day of our life at Saskazello. Shooters from the guard began to carry our luggage to the round hall. We were walking here and there, expecting lorries. We put on our coats and went to the balcony several times, but had to come back to the halls. It was broad daylight. The sunrise was beautiful when we started our journey, and we left Saskazello at 6.10 in the morning. Okay, so that rounds up really everything for this episode. Just a quick look ahead to next week. I'm going to treat, yes, two more palaces. And I've picked them and put them together because there are two more palaces in which you can learn yet more about this last Romanov family from two completely different angles, in fact. So the first one is the Shuvalov Palace, which is now home to the Fabergé Museum and where, amongst many other treasures, you can see the, I think it's nine Fabergé eggs on display there, which really are evidence of the most incredible OTT luxury that in which the Romanovs lived. You can see Easter eggs fabulous jewel-encrusted numbers, the gifts that they gave each other at Easter, and think about the life of luxury that they were able to lead. And then alongside that, I want to talk briefly about the Yusupov Palace, which is best known today perhaps as the place where Rasputin was finally entrapped and murdered. And that gives us, of course, another side of the lives of Nicholas, Alexandra and their children. So for the moment, I'd like to finish this episode by thanking you very much for your attention, spasibo, and wishing you goodbye in Russian, which I think I'm beginning to crack finally. Do svidaniya. <laughs>